Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to The Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I am Royful Brown, who's back home with my folks in Birmingham in England. Today we are joined by TV pundit Laura Babcock in Ham- Hamilton in Canada, journalist Emma Burnell, who's in London in England, and by author Jared Kobeck in Los Angeles in America. Say hello, folks. Hi, folks. Hey. In a week that has seen 16 Formula One drivers take a knee for Black Lives Matter, we ask, is the Supreme Court the effective check on the Trump ad- administration that the Republican Party has not been? We have breaking news from the Supreme Court, and this has the potential to impact at least the political standing of the president and possibly the presidential race. The justices have just ruled against the president's attempts again, against the president's attempts to shield his financial records and tax documents from New York prosecutors. NBC Justice correspondent Pete Williams is with us to explain. So the president must turn over his uh, taxes to the grand jury in New York unless he can come up with the same kind of arguments that any other person would be able to raise as an objection in court. So the Supreme Court sent the Vance case, the New York grand jury case, back to the lower courts But it took away all the arguments the president made about why he is different and special, that he's absolutely immune from the criminal justice process and that allowing local district attorneys to seek things from the president would subject the president to harassment. So what the Supreme Court says is, okay, now go back to court and make the same kind of arguments anybody else would make about why you think these subpoenas are intrusive. At his campaign rally last month in Tulsa, President Trump said his Supreme Court appointments were some of his biggest achievements. We have two justices of the Supreme Court, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh. After last week's rulings, was that a Trump boast? Was that a Trump boast? Was that a hollow boast from Trump? Well, how about you, Jared? What do you reckon? I, I have a complicated idea about this, which is, which is I think... In many of the rulings, the answer is no. 
in some of the rulings, the answer is yes. Um, I think with the Supreme Court, I think we think about the Supreme Court as this abstract entity, which is made up of nine nameless figures, or n not nameless, but just like, I don't know how you describe them, nine abstract figures, but they're actually individuals. And I think the fact that they all have to live in DC means there is a there's a certain kind of socialization that happens in Georgetown that happens in the uh, corridors of power. And I think, you know, if you want to go to good parties in Georgetown, if you're John Roberts, you can't, you know, you cannot side with Trump. And I think that's been the guiding philosophy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it has certainly been a check on the imperial presidency. I don't think it's been a check on individual policy issues. But isn't the whole construct of the Supreme Court to be that these actually are individuals and it's their interpretation of the law, of the Constitution? But then also, um, doesn't this really underline the fact that Roberts is supposed to be the conservative and he has sided with the liberals at least on three occasions in the last year? That one of the things which he's really uh, conscious about, Justice Roberts, is the place and the standing actually of the Supreme Court. And he doesn't want it to be this divisive political cudgel in the, in the middle of the American debate. Emma. I think what's really interesting about the appointees to the Supreme Court is that they're conservative, they're not Trumpist. Um, and that's what, what we're seeing is actually there's a big division between conservatism and Trumpism. And so they are saying quite often in these rulings, we don't hate what you're trying to do, but the way you're doing it is so wrong that it's impossible for us to let you go get away with it. You know, it's so against our constitution. It's so against all the rules we set for ourselves. So I think that what they are saying a lot of the time is not you have the wrong ideas, you're taking the wrong approach, but we want to be conservative, you're trying to make us radical and we don't want to be radical. And I think it's also a little oversimplistic when people select the Supreme Court, the idea that, oh, they are selected by this president or they belong to this party. These are people who are highly intelligent, who have a historic responsibility, who you know take jurisprudence extremely seriously. And in a time when we're seeing the democracy, the foundations of American democracy crumble, I think the role of the Supreme Court has never been more important. And we're seeing that kind of judgment come out of it. Whether or not Trump thinks they're against him or for him, or whether or not people think that they're acting like conservative judges or Republican judges, I think they're acting like judges. And we won't like all of the rulings, but we're going to see, I think, a kind of level of sobriety that is going to come out of the bench. Uh, less rhetoric, less nonsense, more of a really serious attempt to keep their third of what is America up, right? They are responsible for a full third of it. And they have to, the third branch of government, they've got to sustain it. And I think we're watching some uh, really remarkable rulings. Sharon, have they convinced you? Do you still believe this is because, um, you know, Roberts likes to go to these Georgetown cocktail parties and that's the reason why he's uh, not signed up to the whole Trump bandwagon? I think they're the same thing, to be honest, which is I, I think the Supreme Court justices exist in a social milieu, which is 
determined by a series of socially agreed upon norms and that they're reflective of those norms. It may be that around D.C. in Georgetown in Virginia, that's the place where the norms of government are the most believed in in the entire country, right? Because they that's an entire ecosystem that exists in the shadow of the idea of the federal government, of the idea of the federal government being responsible, right? Um, so I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's disconsonant. I mean, I agree with both of, both of those points of views. I just also think, I, I have a really dubious view of human nature. Um, so <laughs> I don't know I, why, I, but that's because I'm 45 <laughs> and I've been dating for a long time. <laughs> Um, as your as your neighbor watching what's happening to the south of us uh, i'm optimistic that maybe maybe there is an awareness of uh of of the adults have got to start taking charge right because we the whole world is quite concerned i don't know i think in 2016 we all said this is the worst year nothing could be worse than this Every year that's come since has really done its absolute best to convince us otherwise. <laughs> Amen to that, sister. And, and we're only halfway through 2020, and it's by far the worst year since at least 1945. Um, on Thursday, the Supreme Court categorically dismissed President Trump's claim to absolute immunity um, against investigators seeking his tax returns. This is obviously a bloody nose. Will it have any political consequence, Jared? What do you mean by political consequence? Oh, Trump could maybe filibuster this out uh, until after the election. Yeah, um, will, we, will we get any view yeah. of those tax returns before November? No, I, I don't think so. Well, will, it provide, will this provide some kind of cover for those Republicans who are running for Congress and for Senate? Uh, more importantly, the Senate, really, because Congress is almost definitely going to be returned blue. Uh, in November, you know, it's a case of uh, the Supreme Court, which is our Supreme Court, if you are a right winger, as um, legislated against the, uh, as, as put, put a decision against the president, they know they're going down for a historic defeat. Will this stiffen their sinews? Will it stiffen the backs of those Republican senators who are running in swing states so that they can actually come out and say that um, this president is not fit for the office? Probably. I mean, I think, I think it depends more on what the polling looks like, whether or not this individual decision will affect that. I, again... I have a very dubious view of human nature. Um, I think it's not enough. I think it might be the beginning of people getting to that point, particularly as they become more terrified about their own position. Joe, we see people flipping over to the sort of anti-Trump stance once they've got through their primaries. Do you think that's what's more likely to happen? Possibly. I, I mean, I, I find it... I find what Republicans have done mystifying and I, and I find the conversion of that political party into, you know, I, I mean, probably these are changeable people. I, I mean, one of the things that really was incredible after Trump won was how there, it was a party of people who were basically either 
vocally or tacitly opposed to his election yeah once he won they all came and kissed the ring i mean he actually ran like some kind of auditions for people where like mitt romney showed up and wore a lobster bib um i i think they easily could change i don't think they have loyalty to trump i think they have loyalty to the idea of winning and if he it's seems like power, loyalty to power rather than yeah. loyalty to, to who's in power yeah but are they not one minute are they not also um enthralled to the power of the georgetown cocktail set as well you know these senators the senators well, the house less the justices are, are more plausible and my and malleable yeah uh, than uh, the senators Say that again. I'm sorry, I missed. I think I actually talked over you. Why is it that the justices, mm. if I'm going by your uh, distrust of human nature, right, and the fact that Roberts, in particular, the centrist uh, justice, um, can you know he wants to get on with the, with the uh, with the Georgetown set, okay? So why is it that the senators who also live in Washington are not so malleable and pliable in terms of their attitude towards Trump so far? Uh, I think because here to, for quite a while it looked like Trump was the key to winning, right? Mm -hmm. With the base at the very least. Uh, Supreme Court judges don't, they're, that's a lifetime appointment. They're immediately removed from that ecosystem. And I think there is a ton of institutional drift. People have done work on this idea that there may really be a liberal drift. Uh, just by virtue of being part of the court. Um, and also, you know, the position of senator is a really strange position. The Senate was established kind of to give, you know, to create almost, uh, what, a hundred individual fiefdoms. Uh, that's different than being a, a justice. And also, I think, as someone just said, you know, these are whatever you want to say about them in terms of their political leanings, these are serious people in a very different way than politicians can be serious people. These are people who have, you would hope, a lot of interaction with the law. They've been scholars. You don't end up there without some kind of rationality and debate happening. Um, and I think that. You know, I think that's a very different mindset than just getting the power of being a senator. Emma? I mean, that yes, but, I mean, you know, two years ago, we were watching Brett Kavanaugh behave like a spoiled teenager in his confirmation hearing. Yeah. So... But he's a weird one. I he mean, is a weird one, but then, he, you know... Like, um, he's like something that was grown in a tank. Thomas, at the Thomas was a, you know, groped women. Um, you know, yeah. there, there is a weird one in all of their pasts, or at least quite a few of their pasts. <laughs> yeah. But if we go to the senators for a second, what I think is really interesting is, and you mentioned the polling, obviously Trump's in big trouble. If you right. look at the polling, we're four <laughs> months out. We all learned our lesson last time. Let's not put... 
what I think runs America and always has is money. And if you look at the fundraising that is happening in some of these Senate races up again, they are trying to take out the big dogs. They are going after Lindsey Graham. They are going after these previously untouchable senators to try to take the power back in the Senate. There will be no kind of advancement if it remains where the Senate is so controlled by the GOP. So there has to be uh, taking out these big ones. And some of the numbers in those races, not just the fundraising, but the polling locally, uh, are, are really astounding. And it goes to, I think, you know, it's easy for us to think, I believe, certainly, I'm cynical like you are, what is Trump willing to do. He just pardoned, he just, you know, commuted stone sentence. There's nothing he won't do to win. There's nothing he won't do between losing and January 20th to make everyone pay for him losing. I mean, we are in for a rocky six months, no doubt about it. But I also look at the midterm results and the enthusiasm levels against Trump, not for Biden, but against Trump. And the fact that they were able to turn so many smaller seats. Uh, So I have more confidence in the bigger play that's going on by the Democrats, by 20 million people being part of Black Lives Matters protests. If those people are going to vote against Trump for the only safe alternative, Biden, I mean, I just, I just think that there is a possibility here for a shift in November the that will be substantial. Is, and, and I'm hoping it goes all down um, ticket. The most obvious seats that the uh, that the Democrats are going to take from Republicans are the ones where you have people who are normally known as soft Republicans. So Susan Collins, for example. Now, okay, Susan Collins lets us down a lot. A lot, uh, a lot. All the time. She, she always promises and never delivers, don't but, you? She always I never listen to her. I can't stand so people want, like that. But that's the thing. Gonna end I'd rather just have someone come out and say, I'm purely very ideological Republican Party in the seats where they're never going to lose. And a Democratic Party that's actually very diverse and not doesn't hang together that well. That's going to be an interesting challenge for the Democrats, I think. Let, let, let's go back, because we've had a little bit of uh, topic drift here. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, let, let, let's, let's drag it all the way back. You in particular, Emma, um, in the last year, we've seen rulings not necessarily go the way that people thought cons- they would ideologically because of the split of the court. Okay. LGBTQ rights have been strengthened. DACA has been, is still there, et cetera, et cetera. Has, has the Supreme Court really cemented itself as this body, which isn't necessarily party political the way it was supposed to have been has it has it basically has roberts been correct in that this is not a party political organ of state and has he um safeguarded it from uh those accusations mr k for the time being I think that's what he has tried to do. He has been the deciding vote in almost all of the decisions that would give that impression. I mean, the thing that, but I mean, to talk about it being cemented, it's a changeable body. There's a lot of very people of advanced age on that thing. That that court could change tomorrow, right? Um, and if it did change tomorrow, if Trump, uh, you know, Trump is still president, it would be a, we, this discussion would be 
very different. And I mean, I think that's one of the things about the court that's, you know, hard hey, to talk about. Remember um, when Anton Scalia died in 2016, <clears throat> um, Mitch McConnell says you can't have a new justice in an election yet. So right. if somebody died tomorrow, you'd only have eight. Yeah. Well, yeah, except that Mitch McConnell would completely change his mind uh, and, and rush through those <laughs> conservative judge they could find. Let's face it, we're not talking about someone with any intellectual consistency here. Yeah. Can I just add in, though, that the best thing I've seen helping the Democrats are the third-party advertising juggernauts that are pumping out stuff on social media daily, whether it's the Lincoln Project or any of these other former, Republi or former uh, Republicans, anti-Trumpers. Their media game and their attack ads are so far above anything the Democrats could put together. It gives me some kind of hope. I mean, no one can hurt you like family. I and get these the feeling those ads are you know, for an audience of one. They're only trying to create a reaction from Trump. And I don't know how many minds they change. We need to move on. Uh, we can't talk about the election. Specifically, what really uh, interests me about this topic was, yes, it's election-esque, but it's not necessarily about that. But the, the, the body of the Supreme Court isn't this necessarily partisan football, the way everything in American society has become. And I thought that was really interesting. So on that note, we're going to move on and we're going to talk about Canada and its debt. The uh, reality is that we've faced an enormous shock to our system. We know that the federal government was in the best position to deliver support at scale and with speed. Our principle has been to get support to people quickly and simply, and we believe that we've been able to satisfy that goal. Now, uh, we know also that the federal government, by taking on this role, by taking on the debt, it meant that Canadians, challenged Canadians, didn't have to take on nearly as much debt in their households, and that the cor corporate sector didn't need to take on nearly as much debt. We think it was the appropriate thing for the federal government to do in this time. You'll see that we are working to make sure that we manage our debt prudently, We've uh, decided that we are going to extend the duration of the debt that we put out to the market. Significant change in terms of how we manage that so that we can ensure that we're able to uh, manage that debt prudently on behalf of Canadians. As challenging as this situation is, we are in a position where the cost of our debt is lower than it's ever been before. In fact, our debt, the cost to service our debt are actually going to be this year $4 billion less than we expected even a year ago. So that's, uh, although challenging, that's obviously a better situation than we could have imagined. We think that raising taxes would be exactly the wrong response to dealing with this sort of challenge. We want to actually increase demand, demand from, from people. We want to ensure that we put uh, money into the economy, and that's why we've been making investments. So uh, we, uh, we believe that the focus on growth is a place that we should be focusing. We should be trying to grow our economy, which of course will grow jobs and create opportunities for the future. Canadian federal debt load will hit $1.2 trillion in 2020-2021. Uh, this is according to, government, uh, to the government's uh, fiscal snapshot. Should Canadians be worried after Minister of Finance Bill Munro uh, released this snapshot about the forthcoming budget deficits. You Canadians, uh, Laura, are prudent, 
you're sensible, dare I say, you're a little bit boring, and you are, you know, the one out of the Anglosphere countries that has not been running a massive budget deficit. Should Canadians be worried about Trudeau and his COVID largesse? I think you have to look at the bigger picture. And most Canadians, if I, I don't subscribe to all of your stereotypes of us, <laughs> however, I will, I will capitulate to the one that we tend to be cautious when it comes to how we care for others, how we approach something like a pandemic. We have been very cautious with the pandemic. Thank goodness we've flattened the curve across most of the country. We're seeing a couple hundred new cases a day versus the U.S. at what, 17,000 a day or whatever it is. I mean, it is not, if, you, if you're 10 times our population, clearly we've handled this pandemic differently, better. And it's because uh, as Canadians, we put aside the partisan rhetoric and all of the nonsense and the histrionics. We didn't politicize it. And we actually just tried to attack it. We haven't made every right decision. But part of Trudeau's largesse was to say, you know what, we're going to throw everything in the kitchen sink at this. Whatever we need, we're going to give people as many paychecks as they need to get through this. Basically, the message from day one was we're in this together and we're not going to let anybody fall away. We are the very different message than we've seen, of course, in some other countries with more populist rhetoric and all the other nonsense. And so in Canada, yes, did Trudeau throw a whole lot of money at this, including, you know, we were giving out paychecks in Canada right out of the gate. In fact, people even got back pay they didn't even expect when they went for the federal supports, uh, just because the idea being we would rather have everyone healthy and stay home who needs to so that we can emerge from this thing. And so here's where I'm not worried about the debt. I mean, obviously, I, I don't love the debt and getting up to that or the deficit. Uh, but in Canada, we have one of the best ratings in the G7 in the world in terms of our economy. We have but Laura, talking about that, though, one of the um, shots fired by the Conservatives has been that Canada is the only G7 countries had its uh, credit rating marked down by one of the three American credit agents. We're, we're, we're the, the, one of the only two yeah. that had the AAA rating in the first place. I mean, so but here's the whole point is that you have to look at these things in terms of the broader context. Canada not only is for the first time beating the U.S. in terms of some uh, innovation and, and, and uh, competitive positioning in the world now, our footing, we have a great credit rating comparatively, we have a good debt to GDP ratio. And also, I hate to say this to my American friend, because I ache for you. But America's downfall is Canada's advantage, because we have many of the same capacities on a smaller scale, we have a much safer country in many ways. And we already saw before this happened, just with Trump's stupid immigration bans, that some of the Silicon Valley companies were looking at Canada as their new head headquarters. So the more that America, unfortunately, is on its knees with this presidency and this pandemic, the, the less concerned Canadians are about our ability to be competitive and to, and to make this money back. I just hope we don't tip into austerity measures. I hope we don't go into high inflation like in the 70s. I have some worries, Ryfield. I'm not, I'm not Pollyannic here. But come on, would you rather be anywhere other than Canada in this situation at the moment? I well, you make a very powerful and persuasive argument for Canada. You are waving that Canadian maple leaf flag. Emma, every world economy has had to respond to, to COVID. Um, just remind us how the average Brit is seeing uh, the UK's government's response uh, financially. Are, are they worried about the future, saying that we are mortgaging up the future and our grandchildren are going to have to pay for this? Or are they saying we absolutely need this right now? It's so weird. We have two responses 
about the financial part of COVID. Um, and they are almost exactly um, completely the opposite, but you get them from both sides. So you'll have people on the left going, oh my God, it's so awful that we're building up all this debt for our children. And people on the right going, um, it's totally okay to build up debt. That's what we've always done in a crisis. And those are weird arguments to be had from those different sides. Um, you know, that's not normal in, in the way that we respond to things. Um, you and I had a fascinating conversation the other day, you might remember, about debt. Um, I have a very strong theory about debt, which is that there's a, there's a space that you get to as an entity whereby debt is good for you and you don't care about it. And that could be a state, it could be a corporation, it can be an individual. Um, but there's also a state that you get to where you use debt as a weapon. And that's what happened in the 80s. That's what Thatcher did. She absolutely really likened the debts that we got into it as a country in the 70s to a household budget. Completely different. The way that debt responds to a household and the way that debt responds to a state is completely different. But politically, that was an incredibly strong message. Then we had the same thing in 2010s. The reason we had to have austerity was that the Labour government had crashed the economy by paying too much for this state and we had to cut back. Uh, and again, it was that credit card bill debt that it was likened to, but it's completely different. So debt, we have, as, as individual political actors, we have very little understanding of what debt is, of how debt works, um, of how debt works for a state differently from how it works for us as individuals. So I'm in a lot of debt. I owe a mortgage, I have a credit card, blah, blah, blah. And that scares me and it keeps me up at night. So it's, of course, it's a scary word when you then say, my country has a lot of debt. But my country has much more ability to pay that off, to, 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 to work it, to, to push it out, to, to manage that debt that I do as an individual. But it's a really good way of stopping us from state spending. Mm. Same question to you, uh, Mr. Jarrett. Um, many people, but I added with the caveat that um, many people were surprised with the speed of the Trump's uh, Trump administration's response to COVID. The fact that they decided very quickly they were going to give a sum of money to each individual in a in a household, um, but then subsequently. Um, especially the Democrats within Congress are saying the, the, the federal government should go much further with its uh, support for the US economy uh, going forward. Now, considering that America has record levels of debt, um, um, how how is that playing out uh, politically in the US in terms of, is it just quite simply, if you're a Democrat, you think the, the government should spend more and Republicans say that we spent too much or are there kind of like, you know, centrist independents who are also in, in either camp? Just give us a snapshot of how this debate to do with debt, COVID, and the financial ramifications of it post um, are playing out in the US. Um, I assume that there are centrists. I don't think that they get a lot of press. 
Um, I think <clears throat> the partisan divide is so profound that there are two arguments that get made over and over again in different variations. And they're made by the usual suspects. I mean, I agree with the Democrats. I think we should be spending as, well, maybe not as much as we can, but certainly one of the ways that you survive a moment like this is by injecting money into the economy. And it pays off in the long run. And it increases the capacity to pay, that, pay back that debt. Um, to what degree this is even being talked about or thought about outside of relatively rarefied circles. I, I can't tell you. I haven't heard anyone in my personal life mention debt or government spending beyond a general delight in getting money from the government. Uh, I think that there are so many things going on that that's an issue which is really backburnered and you know, realistically speaking, um, the way that America has interacted with money, and I, when I say America, I mean the federal government, has been so all over the place that I don't think anyone even, I don't think there is a huge amount of people in the electorate who have any idea what any of it means if it's not a really direct thing, like now you're getting a check or now your unemployment benefits are way higher than they ever would have been. I haven't heard anyone mention it in personal conversation. One of the things that I think is so counterintuitive and frustrating to watch with what's happening in the U.S. is that for as much as you know, Trump has the rhetoric about getting American back open and Jared said it'd be rocking and rolling by July, we're 12 days in and it is clearly not, uh, the sooner that they take the pandemic seriously and get a grip on it, the sooner they get to reemerge with some sort of competitiveness on the global stage. I mean, right now an American passport is, is you know, persona non grata. People don't want Americans coming into their countries. They're not gonna wanna deal with American businesses. I mean, they're, they're putting themselves at such risk by delaying and making this so much more inflamed for the world. And so I, I just look at it and I think, you know, it, you're right. During a crisis, you throw money at it. You try to get back on your feet as soon as possible to work that back off. And I think that's why most people don't really care about debt. We're not talking about debt. We're talking about how do we just get through the next month, the next three months, right? Um, but the longer that America drags this out for themselves, the harder it's going to be to come back. And I fear uh, having debt being used as a weapon for austerity, like Thatcher did. I've, here in Canada, we're already talking about that, saying, is this a chance for a universal basic income? Is this a chance to put in safeguards so that we do not careen over into that horrible space uh, where we people start to lose the very support that have, I think, in a large case with Canada, at least, there's a reason uh, why we have more access to COVID testing and to, and to good COVID care, because we, we don't hesitate to go to the hospital. <laughs> you know, we don't, it's not a calculation for us, right? We pay our taxes and we go to the hospital. I was surprised, Laura, I was surprised that um, there were so many articles, basically, about what she had actually said um, this week. Is it quite simply the fact that this has come up has been an issue in Canada because it's symbolically one trillion dollars? It's a case of you tripped over a figure, people have just gone, and some people have just gone <gasps> type of thing. Considering how bad your uh, 
debt ratio was in the mid 90s and Canada was compared to a third world country in terms of its GDP to debt ratio. And then you got it all the way back down to a surplus quite recently. Is it just a case that it is one trillion and it's just a symbolic figure? Uh, it's a couple of things. I mean, one, I'll give credit to Paul Martin. He was a liberal finance minister. Some would argue maybe one of the, he was a, not a great prime minister. He didn't kind of have the alpha, uh, but he did give us sort of, sort of uh, austerity, uh, kind of in a slow moving way enough so that we buttressed it ourselves and we're able to weather the financial crisis of 2008 better than others because of that. And yes, we were in a position where Trudeau had a surprise budget surplus, right? And, and, and so people in Canada, we are in a very good footing. Now, why is it such a big deal, Royfield? Because it's really, if you look at what's happening in Canada, I mean, the two big stories this week are Trudeau is entitled and is too close to a charity. And he always is like Icarus. As soon as his numbers are super high, he flies too close to the sun, forgets he's a public servant and ends up falling back down. He did it with SNC-Lavalin during the election. I mean, not a huge scandal compared to what we're seeing in the United States, for instance, right? And our COVID numbers, thankfully, are much, much, much better. So is there a conversation we should be having around debt and our spending. And I mean, there was, an, there was actually an assassination attempt on Trudeau this past week. I don't know if you guys are aware of it, but because a lot of the discussion was that the parliament has not been meeting as frequently because of COVID protections and all the rest of it, there was some rhetoric on the far right that he was a dictator and someone wrote a manifesto, drove thousands of miles and tried to drive into his and kill him. He was unsuccessful. The individual uh, clearly had some serious issues, but you know, there, there is there is a, a, a roiling against Trudeau, and, and he does do some things wrong. There's no doubt about it. I'm not a Trudeau partisan by any means. Uh, but comparatively to what we're seeing in other places around the world, Royfield, I think in Canada, we're having the discussion around the trillion dollar debt because kind of everything else is going pretty well. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know, we have the capacity to, to argue around the nuances of debt to GDP because we are not literally trying to figure out how we're going to uh, not triage people at the ER, right? <laughs> when they come in to see what they're doing. Because as I say, debt is not a problem. <laughs> And then we have the capacity to have this conversation. And I mean that seriously. You know, when we. Yeah, no, you're quite right. I did not know there'd been a threat on Trudeau's life. That's quite scary. Yeah. And I, I did know and I'd forgotten because it was, it was such a quirk, quirky thing and whatever that happened and stuff. I, I did, when you, you brought it up, I did remember. However, d just what, last note on this, and I think this is where this kind of unifies us all um, in this conversation. We need someone more conservative than me at some point to, to, to tell me that debt's a bad thing because it's not. <laughs> <laughs> one, one, one second. Let, let's just deal with today right now in this recording, right? Um, have we got to a place where literally governments can, governments do print money? Are countries too big to fail? Within reason, can global economy so we're not talking about dare i say the land of my parents birth jamaica but we are talking about canada we are talking with all its oil we are talking about the united kingdom the what fifth biggest economy in the world you know the Amer america the first biggest are they just too big to fail so can they in effect print money and always get their debts paid uh, and always be able to borrow within reason is this a new 
economic paradigm that it doesn't really matter where you are in the economic cycle, whether you're in relative boom or relative bust, you can always uh, you know, put rocket fuel under the economy in, in boom times by spending more. And when it's in bust time, you need to spend more to get out of that. Money markets. Like Keynesian. Hmm? <laughs> what was that, Emma? You're such a Keynesian. That <laughs> <laughs> correct now. I love it. <laughs> but, but, it's, but, it's a, but it's a serious point, right? Um, all. It's a very good point. And the truth is, we don't know. We don't know if um, the states that we have are the states that we'll have in 100 years. And if what makes those states fail will be economic or political. And those are two different things. Um, they're often conflated, but they are two different things. Absolutely. Uh, the French Revolution came about because the French government was bankrupt. It wasn't just because they did terrible things to the French peasants. They were bankrupt. Yeah. That's what they actually did for them. And arguably, the American Revolution is fundamentally all about... No, right. no taxation without representation. That's an economic no. argument, not a political one. It's totally, 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 totally. Yeah, just, um, that's this just generally as a vague student of history is that... Uh, to <laughs> to ever assume that we are in a position <laughs> too great to fail, I think, is a flawed yeah. concept. <laughs> so I get very, very, very angry with the phrase "late capitalism," and the reason I get angry with that is not because I'm a capitalist; it's but it's the opposite. I'm a socialist, but the idea that that late capitalism, i.e., we are in the last stages of capitalism, is extraordinarily arrogant on the part of people who don't believe in capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> Where are we in the economic cycle of, of capitalism? Uh, are, are we I don't know that we're in the late phase. Maybe we're just at the start of capitalism, Jared. What do you reckon? Yeah, I, I think Emma's right. I think it's impossible to know that you're at the end of something until it's ended. Right. Um, who knows? Uh, I, but I do, I think your question, your original question gets to something that's terrifying, right? At the, at the heart of it, which is how does money work? And there are people who know how money works in sort of broad abstract details. There are people who know how money works in, uh, <clears throat> you know, specific details, but we do live in a moment where I think every major currency, if not every currency in the world, is a fiat currency. And that is a essentially, the fundamental basis of that is fundamentally an agreement about the ordering of value. Um, that agreement could break. There's no, there's no guarantee that that's not the case. And it can break from you know, in a globalized economy, it can break from external things, it can break from internal things. Uh, I don't know, I don't think anyone, I mean, I think people have broad ideas about how a functioning economy works. I think people have broad ideas about how an economy can collapse. But fundamentally, there is a mystery at the heart of it, which actually dominates all our lives. Absolutely. And, and I think the current mystery that one of the key current mysteries at the moment is how much debt can a sovereign nation carry? 
Yeah. Because if you'd have said to an American in the 1970s that this level of debt that the United States is carrying to fundamentally to Chinese, to the Chinese government and Chinese bondholders, that have said impossible. So we are expounding our levels of tolerance to do with debt and money markets seem to keep going with it. But anyway, this is maybe a conversation for another podcast, maybe uh, Planet Money or The Economist should really uh, be, be weighing in here. Uh, we're only uh, humble political pundits. So on that note... Royfield. Go on, go on, Emma. When do you reckon that, mm-hmm. uh, that, that the UK, the British government, paid off the debt that it had to accrue to pay the slavery... Uh, slave oh, owners? This. this was... In the last five years, uh, it was very recently. Yeah. Yes. So, in 1832, the British Empire abolished slavery and only finished and, and decided, uh, rightly or wrongly, to compensate the slaveholders. There's one of the ways of getting them to agree to them giving, and they only paid it off in the last five years. 2015. Uh, it's extraordinary, isn't it? So it turns out that's not that big a deal. I just have to add one thing. I want to extrapolate on the terror, the terror thought <laughs> that, that our American panelists just shared. One of the things that uh, a researcher found in the U.S. recently, I saw him talking on a program, was that when there's a natural crisis, right, something like a hurricane, people come together, they build together. When there is a biological pandemic type crisis, it goes to our base survival instincts and we actually tend to rip apart. We tend to become much more, uh, if you will, in a sense, miserly, much more protective of our own survival. And so I think to have a conversation about macroeconomics and too big to fail and the, and the nuances around the mysteries of money and all of that, we can't do it without saying we are in a once in a hundred century situation here and there are relationships that make that mystical money thing work globally right people are people believe in each other's power they have these different trade agreements everybody props everybody else up and who do we want to have the the big piggy banks and how do we want that to work and what my concern is that those sometimes explicit sometimes secretive arrangements in the global money markets um, they are Laura, possibly fractured right. by the weight of um, this pandemic but the, the question so, isn't how do we speak to people who disagree with us, but more, how do we change their minds? Because we think we're right, surely. I mean, you've got to start from a position where you think you're right. (laughs) You know what, because we're we're absolutely running out of time here. So we're going to have to hold that thought and quickly, uh, let's insert a little bit of audio and then come back with questions about leadership in the UK. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's the honor and the privilege of my life He became leader in lockdown, and since then Keir Starmer's been busy, not just pulling pints and clapping for carers, but wrestling control of his party. I made my decision in relation to Rebecca Long-Bailey yesterday and put out my statement, and I stand by that. Piling pressure on Boris Johnson. The Prime Minister, typically flippant, simply said it's not true. And seeing his poll ratings rise. I think the public view generally Keir Starmer as somebody that's a bit dull but very competent and I can actually think of worse things for an opposition leader to be. I mean, Starmer is, has proven himself to be fairly sort of forensic and at uh, Prime Minister's question time and certainly has been doing what many feel an opposition should be doing at a time of national crisis. A crisis calls for competence and in the era of COVID-19, Keir Starmer's big achievement has been pinning the PM down on detail with largely positive results. The UK was slow into lockdown, slow on testing, slow on tracing. His sacking of left-wing leadership rival Rebecca Long-Bailey in an anti-Semitism row underlined his ruthlessness and he's carefully negotiated sensitive issues like Black Lives Matter. According to UK polls, Keir Starmer, the leader of the opposition, is competent, likeable and decisive. Have our views on leadership changed because of the COVID pandemic. Over to you, Emma. Yeah, maybe. I think we were looking for a bit of shake up the world um, for the last few years. The Brexit vote felt very like that. Um, Trump felt very like that. Um, Boris Johnson felt very like that. Um, But now, like an actual terrible, terrible thing is happening and there are no grown-ups in charge. And we're feeling that. And I think that that lack of grown-ups in charge is being felt. Um, that doesn't yet mean that anyone believes that the Labour Party is full of grown-ups because we took a long time convincing them that we weren't. <laughs> um, so it will be a long time to convince them that we are. Uh, so. I don't know that the answer yet is, therefore we need the Labour Party, but certainly the question is, who are the grown-ups? Where are they? We need them. Jared, mm. uh, very obviously your president came along with a, a distinctly different style to just about every other president with a possible exception of Andrew Jackson that had been before him. Um, is there going to be... A big block of cheese. <laughs> Is there, yes, well done. Um, is there going to be 
not only um, let, let's hope there's going to be a Biden victory um, in November, but do you think that COVID has exposed populism and bluster for what it is, basically, you know, an empty shirt? You know, we that people have said, hmm, we do need to rely on science. We do need experts. We do need to be considered. We do need to be measured in actually what, what we say. We can't just think something and make it some level of, of reality. Um, will there be a sea change in American politics, not just because Trump is gone, but also because America has done so badly in the COVID um, emergency? I think, the, I, think, I think that is a question that is really hard to answer. If I was speaking from a hopeful position, I would say yes. Uh, is the hopeful position the realistic one that's a big question. I, I can't tell how this is playing in the US. I There seems to be, I, I think Trump is part of a bigger problem, which is the complete crumbling of institutional authority. Um, does that mean that at some point there is a period of institutional rebuilding and the reassertion of institutional authority. Uh, it certainly could. Is that going to happen with a potential Biden victory? I don't know. And also, does that, does that crumbling of institutional authority actually affect Trump? I mean, if you look at the polling right now, the answer would seem to be yes. But as I think Laura said earlier in this, we all learned our lesson in 2016. Right. And Trump has this quality, which is really weird, which is he is someone who, if amongst other things, got into that office essentially as an agent of that institutional crumbling. Right. So my fear with all of this is that it's actually just on brand. It is. I agree. And I, I remember the day after the election, uh, my comment at the time was that America was, was feeling ill. There was a lot of ills in the country at the time. They wanted the experimental drug treatment. They didn't want the tried true course that Hillary represented. They wanted, and it was even, even Reince Priebus said, you know, they're going to launch a Molotov cocktail at the White House at Washington. Well done, you know, achieved. Yeah. And, and all of this chaos and all of this outrage and everything else, I mean, he it's a fire hose of outrage. It's always worked for Trump. Nothing can stick because there's too much. We're all just treading water exhausted every day, just trying to figure out what is going on. That has worked for him. He kind of floods the zone with bullshit. He floods the zone with outrage, and people are just so tired. Now, the only thing that is giving me a sense that maybe this time, truly this time, is because... And this is the only thing, and with the caveat up until the last minute on, on that fateful day in November that it could go to Trump again, is that I think the headwinds of COVID and the racial injustice in the United States, I think so many people are so involved in Black Lives Matter and care so deeply about having equality come to your country. And Canada has terrible issues with racial inequality as well, how we treat our Indigenous. I'm not suggesting that we're somehow better. Um, but so many Americans, I feel like, are galvanized by that issue and are feeling real pain from COVID that I think that it might just make it bigger than just whatever Trump can do in terms of his in terms of his political theater. Uh, it might just be too resonant this time and people will come out and vote in mass to get rid of him. I think we're 
what's happened under Trump is really interesting because what's happened is the exposure of the long-term project of completely uh, decimating, uh, uh, completely destroying the public space. And that's been a long-term project of the right wing, but they kind of hid it and Trump has exposed it because he's completely on board with it. So now we're just seeing so much of what's not there in terms of the public sphere anymore. Um, well, it's a, it's a complete destroying of the public space. One second, it's a complete destroying of the public space as long as you don't touch the police and you don't touch... Don't uh, touch police and don't touch some random statue that was put up 20 years, uh, 200 years after the actual civil war. But, okay, we're talking about Laura, because we're talking about Britain here, and we've drifted off to Trump. We're going to drag it back. Though there are obviously universal themes to do with leadership. It's the reason why I pose the question. Um, but, um, Emma, according to a, thing, a Britain Thinks poll, 12%, only 12% of Britons want to return to the old normal after COVID-19 has been um, defeated. So yeah, they're not wrong. The old normal was crap. It was crap for well, most people. Yeah. Uh, and that was that was austerity, and that was uh, divisiveness uh, in terms of UK politics, etc. Yeah. So, has austerity had its day? Which some, in my brain anyway, links back to that last question about austerity. Um, never should have had a day at all. Austerity it was did. a terrible but response to what. Are we one second? Are we truly at a pivot point in UK politics where we can have a kind of fairer society? And I don't want to be a cuddly socialist about this, but I'm a socialist, and I, maybe I've got a few pounds. So I'm a bit cuddly right now, but like <laughs> socialist. Me and you, babe. Me and you. <laughs> which is which and, and and to have that kind of fairer, gentler society, does that mean that we also need a new, more gentle leadership style, which Keir Starmer seems to be personifying? Uh Melly is trying to show us a thing and I can't tell what it is. I can't but see it either. It looks very much like the Scottish Melly, unmute your microphone and and I will say to the podcast listeners, um, I did say this at the very start of the show, uh, podcast listeners. Uh, Melly, un unmute, unmute yourself, it's fine. Yeah, you tell uh, us what your flag is. <laughs> yeah, you've got to tell us what, uh, what, what you're waving. So I'll say to the podcast listeners um, that this is an experiment, as we said at the start, and we are actually on Zoom, and we do actually have an audience of people on Facebook, but we have one on Zoom, and one of the great things about that is that they can automatically <laughs> ask the question. That's not what this podcast is about. <laughs> You, you were waving something. So tell, what were you waving? I was trying to show the Scottish flag because you're talking about the UK and the governments are devolved. Absolutely. And it's no, so you're completely right. You're completely right, Melly. And My little marker wouldn't let me do enough for <laughs> I'll mute myself again, Royfield. I've made the point. Okay, no, thank you're you. And Melly is completely right because Scotland has never voted for a devolutionary government. Uh, it's never voted for an austerity government. It's yeah, voted for first very Labour uh, and then very SNP, but both coming from the left in terms of economics. Um, 
and it is very unfair to Scotland that they get the UK's economic. But then, couldn't I say it's really? Well, I don't want to leave you. Don't go! Don't go! Don't go! I'm sorry, mate. You may disagree with me on this, but I don't want to leave you. But these, these. That. Thank you. I'm just saying thank you. The last time I looked, Scotland is a constituent part of the United Kingdom, just like California is a constituent part of the United States. No, it's just not like, the same, Royfield. That's not like fair. Manitoba. <laughs> constituent part of Canada and Manitoba votes conservative and there's a liberal prime minister. That's how nations are built up by constituent parts. So No, that's not fair because we don't act as if we are one nation. We are a group of nations that work together. Okay. The nation of Scotland has their own very specific identity and a really important identity. Emma, back to Keir Starman. <laughs> He's going to be um, the exemplar of this new uh, COVID politics where everybody wants to support the National Health Service. Everybody wants key workers uh, to have a, um, a proper, a proper decent wage for a decent day's work. Um, and is that going to be one of the key reasons why this Tory shower are going to lose the next election? Because everybody's changed. I actually think on a personal level, so many people I've spoken to, whether they are in Canada, whether they are in America or in the United Kingdom or even in Scotland, have actually said many positive things about lockdown. It's made us appreciate each other more. It's made us appreciate uh, people who do crappy, dirty, low-paid jobs a whole lot more. It's made us, it's made the very fact of being removed away from the grind, the day-to-day -day grind, has made many people realise how truly connected we all are. I don't want to be some kind of utopian hippie here or whatever, right? That's exactly what you're being. <laughs> but I explained to so many people, Jared, so many people said, you're one of them. We spoke for two hours last week and you said, I quite like lockdown. No, that is a mischaracterization. And it wasn't that you, you were rejecting humanity, but you said time, space, quiet. These, these are not necessarily bad things. I'm a things. single no. woman, and I haven't had sex since, sex since, sex since March. Since March. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I don't know if Keir Starmer can help you with that, Emma. I'm not sure where Keir Starmer comes into that, but... <laughs> <laughs> on that note uh, with me being uh, somewhat of a 1960s hippie Jared uh, Jared uh, completely me being 1970s feminist <laughs> saying that we didn't have the conversation that we had last week and then no, no, Emma, I agree with I agree with you rated woman that, that needs a special cuddle we should maybe go to takeaways of the week it's that time where uh, we, we, we just uh, remember that we are all part of a global society, a community, not of people, of souls. And we kick back and as we are sipping on our, maybe our glass of red or smoking on something which is very legal in California, but isn't in the UK. Canada, it is in Canada. And it is in Canada, thank you. Uh, we chill and we talk about something which has excited us or made us reflect on the human nature in the last seven days. So I'm coming over to you, Laura Babcock, over there in Hamilton. 
a city I know well. Um, what's been your takeaway over the last seven days? Well, you know what? I am a proud 45 and usually in terrific health, but I went through uh, a painful episode of shingles, or I think they call it adult chicken box in the UK. And it reminded me, as I had my family having to care for me, really, because it was one of those things where it needed all hands on deck for uh, pain control and whatnot, that uh, in the end, to quote an American singer, Jewel, only kindness matters, right? When you're in a position where your health is actually your primary concern all day, just pain mitigation and, and wondering when you're going to come out the other side of something that painful, uh, you start to put other things in perspective. and. We had a conversation during the podcast today about, you know, whether or not there's a goodness coming out of this self-isolation or quarantine or or having to be home. I can certainly tell you that um, it made me very appreciative that I had people who were living with me, who would care for me uh, as I would for them. And that uh, other things that we get stressed out about, because this is a stress related uh, episode, uh, are not worth stressing about. Because man, once you have your nerves break down on you out of stress, you realize that going forward in this pandemic, which may last years, we have to find ways to care for ourselves, to appreciate others, to look for peace and kindness and uh, live a, a gentler existence. And so that's my takeaway. Now you sound like a 1960s hippie. I have become one and I'm all about the Zen and the weed. <laughs> lovely thoughts and sentiments um how about you emma you've been rather feisty um in in this episode and uh a more power to you and also remarkably on not feisty royfield well, <laughs> five months without come on <laughs> right oh i'm so up for a fight <laughs> what has been your takeaway in the last seven days so I tweeted earlier today that I love London. It was mm -hmm. just one of those just random things that you just send out into Twitter. The mayor of London has responded to me saying, yes, it's the best city in the world. And he's completely right. And I just want to, my takeaway of the week is that I am so blessed to live in this incredible, incredible city. Um, it's the greenest city. Yeah, we. I can walk around and there's never a time that I'm not going to be near a tree. Um, I can walk around and there's never going to be a time that I'm not near an art gallery. That's why I love London. And it's okay to love London. It's, I, I'm not snobby about people who don't live in London and that's where I think a lot of the anti-London stuff Marvel. You Londoners, you're like, oh, you know, there isn't a world outside of the M25. Yeah, no, that's, that's bollocks. I love the rest of the UK, but it is perfectly okay but to love You might love it, but you don't think it's as good as London. Uh, there is nowhere I it's think is better than London as it possibly is. Of London, etc, etc. You you have your Birmingham and you love it the way I love London and that's okay for you. <laughs> I, I spent 25 years of my life in, in, in London and now I'm not anti-London. But the, the problem is with London <laughs> and I think from both oh, sides... We go to the problem in London now. Well, no, no. You know, I, I lived in London from uh, 1994 to technically last year, right? Uh, I lived in West Central London, loved it. 
I didn't know our takeaways were debatable, so I love this. <laughs> I just need to bring it back in here. Right. Here's a, the thing is about London, it's a serious point now, from the UK perspective, and I, I, I say this all the time, but it's so true. If you want to make it in politics in the UK, where do you go? London. If you want to make it in fashion, you want to make it in fashion in London, where do you go? London. The answer to everything in the United Kingdom is London, right? And it's to the detriment, Amelia, you can stop shaking your head. And it's to the detriment, it's to the detriment of the rest of the UK's nations and regions. I'm bringing this back to you, man, Millie, which is the reason why the Scots pushed for devolution. Because since 1945, there was an over-centralization of the, of the UK state. And the over-centralization revolved around I've just London. unmuted myself and you're going to never let me on a Zoom again. We are already devolved. We are devolved in our education, in our healthcare, and some of our benefits, particularly disability benefits. But, 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 but we're not actually Edinburgh Central now in Scotland. <laughs> but go on, Melly. Okay, I'll undo it. You can ban me in future, it's fine. <laughs> what did you ask, Emma? I said um, one of the problems with the, the way that your devolution happened is that it's gone very Edinburgh central rather than devolving to local areas. No. So you've got no. a lot of things that sucked up into Edinburgh. No. So your local government has even less powers than our local government. I would disagree because the things that are devolved, um, have, you, have you visited the Edinburgh camp? I've been to Edinburgh and Glasgow. Yeah. I, I haven't. Glasgow has its own in, uh, kind of political thing going on, which is a bit of a nightmare. I don't live there anymore. Glasgow has its own politics. It's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying. It's just it's supposed to be the, the uplifting bit of the show. No, it is no. <laughs> from um, Stormont. They absolutely Stormont, do. Stormont, that's in Ireland. Right. But they feel very excluded from that kind of central beltway, economically and politically in Scotland. Maybe you're, you're nodding your head. So anyway, so let's move on. Let's so London is wonderful because this is this is the bit of the show where <laughs> you, oh, it's right. we're, we're just like it's, it's Go for you. All right. So, so now um, we need to come on to um, 
you, Jared. Uh, what's been your take? You need to rescue us because I don't know what dark place you go down there. Please, and controversial. Yeah, no, I, 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 amazingly, I have something which no one can argue with. Um, okay. I, re, you know, all of the uh, controversy around the Confederate, uh, around the Civil War and the Confederate monuments reminded me that when I was like 16, I had read a novel called Lincoln's Dreams by Connie Willis, who's a science fiction writer. Um, and I had remembered really, really, really liking it. Um, but my taste when I was 16 was awful. So I was very, very dubious about going back to read it. And, but I did, and it's amazing. It's a truly incredible book uh, that is, not science fiction despite it being published under science fiction trade dress because once once you sort of i mean i don't know if it's still true but certainly this thing was published back in 89 and that moment if you were a science fiction writer once you were a science fiction writer forever but um it's like a it's a it's a completely plausible ghost story that may actually just be about two people having a mental breakdown. And the mechanism of the haunting is that a woman may or may not be having Robert E. Lee's dreams. It, it's phenomenal. I was really, really delighted to read that. What did you say? That sounds amazing. I have to read that. Yeah, it, it, it is such an incredibly good book. And I think her later work was much more popular. Uh, because it was more genre, so it's been, and she's an astonishing writer. Uh, she's probably the best writer in American science fiction, period, ever. Um, but this was like this little gem that I just remembered and reread. And like, as a writer in this moment, you spend a lot of time wondering if there is any validity to what you're doing. And then occasionally you'll come across something and be like, oh God, yeah, right. Novels can have actual power. This can really, someone can really do this. And to find it in a place where one was not expecting it was really the highlight of the week. You know, I read it in a day. It's phenomenal. Wow. How wonderful. How wonderful to, well, to find something that you'd already loved and find new, new, value in it That's yeah so and i mean i was a complete idiot when i was 16 so i was very dubious about this thing <laughs> well we, we can't we can't be contentious about that they're so beautifully put and it sounds so incredibly clever what an amazing setup um what's been my takeaway of the last uh last seven days um Truth be known, when, when, when I always ask about takeaways of the week, I've never actually thought about it until I actually asked the question, which is, which is absolutely a dreadful admission, but it's a truthful one. I'm going to say that, um, mothers, there you go. I'm being a big shout out, uh, for mothers. Um, 
my mum, who's actually sneaked in the room since we've recorded this, if you heard a little creak off, off mic, it's because my mum tried to <laughs> open the door, see if it was all right for her to come in, and I had to turn around and go, no, right? And then she went round, all the way around the other side of the house and came in through, through, through the front. Um, mothers are wonderful. And I don't think, um, obviously mothers have a bit special place in society, but I think it should be elevated just that little bit more. Um, my mom uh, went to the doctors uh, this week and my mom is incredibly health conscious. She does, she's 72. She, she won't thank you for saying that, but she doesn't listen to this podcast, so it's fine. She's 72. But she's uh, in the room with you, Roderfield, right? Oh, she's now gone. She's now gone. <laughs> she's got what she wanted and she's snuck out. Um, she does yoga. She's embracing new ideas. She's now become a vegetarian in the last two weeks and she wants to be a vegan. Uh, like, there's a real, there's a real sense with my mum, but I'm extending this out to mothers anyway. That only do they, you know, have they given birth to you? Have they, you know, brought you up? But also that she's, my mom still wants to learn. She still wants to do new things. And she wants to share that with people. And I think um, some of the, and I see my, my friend um, Amy, who's a new mom, and the and the love and the care that she has looking after her 16 month old baby and how tired she gets and how how sometimes she just feels like there isn't time for her i just go what a job you know i've got three kids but i'm a dad it is a slightly more abstract role it just is you don't birth you don't hold that human being within you um so it's all it's it's always been not part of me, even though I love my kids and stuff. And I just think mothers, they're awesome. Uh, everybody's got one, whether you know whether you I know your mother or not. So big ups to mothers from me. What I mom? noticed a piece recently about why I didn't want to be a mum. And it's a really hard decision, particularly as someone of my age, because that that you know, I'm I'm at the last point where I could ever choose that. And I'm right, but it, it, it's not a 100% decision. Do you know what I mean? It's, you know, there, there's a loss of me that's mourning the children I'm never going to have. And then I look at you and I look at the way that people behave with their own kids. And I'm, I'm really, I'm a great auntie. Let's face it, I'm a <laughs> I was like, and you're having the, the, the child for two days. <laughs> so may I just say, Royfield, the, the um, becoming a mother changed me a lot. I wasn't sure I wanted to have kids, but when I did, you know, you learn all kinds of things that you didn't think you could do or had to pass before. But I will tell you one of the things that struck me as the best way to describe being a mother is to have your heart beating outside of your body. And so because my kids were in my body, now that they're outside of my body, my, my heart is literally physically it feels like with them i can hear them in the night i always need to know physically where they are it's a very different experience than my husband has with the kids right um, i think laura, i think you're exactly right laura part of the reason i didn't have kids is i would have been too overprotective yeah it's hard, I would have been, it's hard. 
terrible, terrible mother. <laughs> I will write a book on all the mistakes I have made. <laughs> I have a book on mothering mistakes. <laughs> I do. <laughs> One day I'll be a great stepmother to someone's children. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, this has been the uh, the end. Uh, we're drawing the veil down on our experiment of doing um, Mid Atlantic. We're with a very special audience who uh, threw bricks at uh, some of the things that I said, unmuted herself, and uh, pushed herself into the argument. Hey, Melly. <laughs> Thank you for your accent. I love it. I never hear Scottish accents like that. <laughs> exactly what we want on, on Mid Atlantic. Uh, but uh, just to finish off the show, here is the normal drill. I say, uh, Jared Kobeck, um, where can people find you on social media, sir? Nowhere. What are you working on at the moment? A secret project that I'm not sure is actually going to get published. I, I, It's about Trump, but we'll see. Put it that way. Um, you know, one of the dangers of, like I was saying, actually, when I was talking about Connie Willis's book, is like, it's a weird moment to be a writer. Uh, mm. Trump is like a black hole where anything yeah. you throw at it is crushed by gravity and forgotten 10 seconds later. So it's kind of a, it's a strange task to take on, but we'll see. Well, good luck, and I'd like to read it. Yes. Yeah. Emma Burnell, uh, what about you? Where can people find you on social media, and what are you working uh, on? I'm far too much on Twitter. Uh, I'm Emma <laughs> and, and sorry, yes, Laura. Oh, yeah, you can find me, uh, Laura Babcock, on Twitter, where I love watching Emma's tweets. That's <laughs> been on Twitter for a lot of different reasons. Uh, also, uh, Laura Babcock on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and uh, working as usual on my company and my shows. Yeah. No, you should revel in your ignorance because it's awful. This is where I say you can follow me on, on, on Twitter if uh, you want to see badly uh, formatted sentences which barely have any resemblance From to being... Start, and um, of course, for our Mid Atlantic show, um, go on to our website, which is midatlanticshow.com, and you can go and post a voicemail message, which we then can refer to in a future show. I feel we're going to keep doing these these tests because it's we have a little audience on, on Facebook watching us live. I think it's re really good to have um, audience participation. Just maybe not coming from Scotland, though. Let's keep the Scots out of this. And that's been us. We'll see you all again in a proper time for another rip roaring, barnstorming, controversial, but always episode of Mid Atlantic. Take care. Bye bye. Bye.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.